This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 29th of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, we look at the Australian way of achieving net zero emissions and vote early and vote often. It's something that we might not be able to do for too much longer. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, the black swan of trespass on alien waters. The plan to deliver net zero has been released by the Morrison government and there's nothing new, there are no costings and there's no modelling to support any of the assertions that are made in the plan. It's a 20-page document, or 16 if you take away the back covers and a few full-page photos, but it's a political document that talks about Australia's quiet achievements. It's so quiet that no one has actually heard about them. It commits to nothing new at all and is filled with three-word slogans, including the best one yet, technology, not taxes. The plan has got nothing to do with the COP26 climate change conference. It's all about government talking points that they'll use at the next federal election. It's solely directed at the Australian electorate, and it's a sad exercise in political grandstanding and marketing spin. The plan, much like the Morrison government, is insubstantial, inadequate, and being used as a tool against the Labor Party and doing absolutely nothing about climate change and the environment. The Australian public deserves far more than what's being provided by this federal government. Pathetic doesn't quite capture the mediocrity of it all. There's a secret deal with the nationals. We don't know what they've managed to extract from letting it through. And given that the science is clear, we know that climate change currently is man-made and the dissent amongst nearly every scientist... The few scientists who dissent are actually arguing about how long it's going to take. Some think quicker, others are saying it will take about 80 years. In there, there's an optimism that it can be fixed. Obviously, we'd prefer the longer model, but I should think that any prudent policy would be based on the shortest model and trying to fix as much as you can to at least try and keep the planet habitable. Of course, it'll hit the third world first, the most vulnerable, needy, poor, and uh, exposed. And I, this might be an issue with Morrison. We remember Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton laughing at the notion of Pacific Islands sinking if something wasn't done, all the while denying that any of this was happening. They didn't realize the microphone was on. Peter Dutton said as the, as the water's lapping up to their feet as the island sinks, something along those lines. It's clear that the Federal Liberal Party and the National Party are at the behest of the big polluters, particularly, but not limited to, the the mining companies. None of the private firms want to pay or take any consequence for their damage to the environment, at least in Australia. There are private firms, of course, who are working very hard to try and fix things through changing policy, changing manufacturing, moving things away from, etc., etc., and those companies are to be commended. But There is a group of people who have a lot of interest in not changing the system who are doing their very best to not change the system. It's time the government stopped 
representing those and actually started representing all of Australia and a part of the world. That document he put up was terrible. It's got nothing in it of any substance. It has no plan. It's completely unfit for purpose, as you said, just like the government. The Johnson government, not known for its uh, climate-friendly stance, put in 61 documents and thousands and thousands of pages of a fairly detailed and comprehensive plan. Morrison burbling on about the Australian way, as if that's got anything to do with it. And really, if we would look at it, the Australian way is the workers' paradise, high wages, environmentally sustainable policy, collectives over individuals. That's the Australian way. Free education, multiculturalism, (laughs) the clever country. I don't know what he's talking about, and I actually suspect he doesn't know either. Well, the Australian way is the subtitle of the plan to deliver net zero, the publication that he was holding up the other day. But all of this is classic Morrison marketing tricks. And I was actually surprised that they didn't have a photo of a dolphin or a whale on the front cover. (laughs) But it's mainly talking points. There's a focus on key political words such as quiet achievement. And there's that relationship with the quiet Australians who apparently won the election for Morrison at the last election. The document talks about five key principles, technology, not taxes. Well, that's not actually correct. They're planning to send a lot of taxpayer money out to the National Party for their regional pet projects, and that's money that comes from tax revenues. Where else would it come from? They say that they're expanding political choices, but they're mainly focused on fossil fuel production. They say that they'll be driving down costs with new technologies. There's no indication of what these new technologies could actually be in the future. And for me, the best one is that they claim that they'll be accountable for progress on climate change. And this is one of the most unaccountable governments ever in Australian history. They're not going to keep themselves accountable on climate change or anything else. And I don't care if people keep bagging us for pointing out all of the problems about the Morrison government. This is the worst and most incompetent government that we have ever had. And we just have to keep reminding people about this. But the plan to deliver net zero, it's like a summary of the Morrison government. There's a problem that needs fixing, not just in Australia, but internationally. And all we get is spin and marketing. All we get is a lazy 20-page document. And, you know, I've got to admit that there's, (laughs) there's some good photos in there. The layout's not too bad and the PowerPoint presentation was excellent, but this is all telling the public a fairy tale about how wonderful the government is, how wonderful Scott Morrison is, and the problem never gets resolved. It's classic Scott Morrison, and this type of government and this style of governing, well, it just can't continue like this. I don't know what's going to happen when he's in Glasgow and he has to sit down at a table with a group of experts who will have that document and then start digging at him for details. Now, it's quite possible that it's all at his fingertips, it's all in his head. Given what we've seen in his head, I actually doubt that. It's going to be embarrassing for him. And we've said this, but you make your own bed and, and you lie in it. I get the sense there's been a bit of a shift over the last week or so that he will spend the next amount of time struggling to reclaw legitimacy and support from a lot of his supporters. And it's this type of thing that even though there's no electoral or very few people in Glasgow will be voting for or against him. And in fact, a lot of Australians won't really notice what's going on, but there's going to be repercussion from this. Now, I've noticed that there's still a lot of emphasis being placed on carbon capture technology. 
And it's been proven before that this is ineffective and it hasn't actually worked anywhere. Australia's got its own project in the Barrow Island that's run by Chevron and it just does not work. So whenever the government talks about climate change, they bring up these fancy words, carbon capture technology, sequestration, and they go through the same cycle again and again and again. The thought bubble goes up in the air. The experts come in to say, well, no, that doesn't work. It's ineffective. Several months later, the cycle continues, the same buzzwords that not many people understand, but they actually sound good and it makes it sound like the government is more sophisticated than it actually is. During the week, David Attenborough suggested that there are still a few people in Australia who don't believe in climate change or don't want to do anything about it. But the problem is that most of these people have just ended up in the federal government. It suits those who don't want to adapt to the climate to put in people such as Barnaby Joyce, Scott Morrison, Malcolm Roberts, the embarrassment of Malcolm Roberts trying to debate with Brian Cox. Now, if, even if Roberts had valid points, he, expressed, he would have expressed them so badly that it wouldn't have made any difference. These people are essentially funded to win elections. They're not the only ones, they're just ones that popped to mind. I said in the last podcast that this is where democracy fails. Democracy shouldn't be beholden to who can afford the better electoral campaign. Democracy should be based should be based on the better candidate. Now, it's never going to be perfect. We know this. But we've got to the point where I think there are more people who shouldn't be in parliament than should. And I don't think that's ever happened before. There's always been people who shouldn't have been in parliament. Always. There's always seat warmers. There's always people who defaulted pre-selection, defaulted winning and shouldn't have been anywhere near there. And some of them had quite long careers, let's be fair. But there have never been a majority of parliament before. And I can't help but thinking that they're, if not a majority, then very close to a majority. This puts us into a real crisis. And with an environmental crisis coming, two crises together don't double, they quadruple. It's logarithmic, not arithmetic, the, the disaster that can happen. Now, you referred to Boris Johnson and the British government before. They're arriving at the COP26 climate change conference with a number of substantial documents, as you referred to before, thousands of pages. Now, it's not just about the quantity. It's, it's about the quality, of course. But they've got a number of clearly defined outcomes that are legally binding and that's how they're turning up to the COP26 climate change conference. And this is the same process that many other European governments are going through as well. And there is a massive amount of work that has gone into creating this international emissions management architecture. This is an absolutely massive project. It's a little, we've referred to this before. It's a little bit like going to the Breton Woods Conference back in 1944 to set up the world economy for the next 30 or 40 years. So this is a massive project. Everyone else is arriving with substantial information. They've prepared for this for a long, long time. Morrison arrives with a 20-page marketing brochure and it just keeps repeating that this is the Australian way and this is so typical of the Morrison government to do absolutely nothing when they did need to do a lot lot more but the bigger issue is that Australia it's missing out on so many opportunities in this field. <laughs> the jobs that could come out of this not in dying industries and transient jobs in dying industries but permanent jobs in developing industries. Australia should be a leader in this stuff we have more sunshine than any other continent, really. 
we have uh, an economy, unlike, say, Africa or Asia, which also have vast swathes of desert and, and sunny plains, where you could put in environmentally sustainable solar panels over such a small area that it wouldn't actually do too much damage to to the area around it and not displace too many animals, etc., etc. We are one country. It's not like Africa where you have to negotiate with several countries, perhaps, and deal with the different regulations and the different scales of economy, etc., etc. Same with Asia. Not to say that these countries can't do that, of course, but there's, there's just that extra step involved. With Australia... The federal government could say, yes, okay, we're setting up a wind farm or a a solar farm in, try and think of somewhere, the central coast. And the infrastructure could be there within two years, set up and done. South Australia, of course, has the battery that fixed a major blackout in less than one hundredth of a second, for example. We can do it. We just like the political will. And I'm thinking in a hundred years' time, when we have people looking at this, what are these people going to think? Surely as a prime minister or a minister, you'd have one eye on the future thinking, how am I going to come through this? Now, if you can justify not following, that's maybe how you can live with it. But I really don't believe that they can justify it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, voting early and voting often is a fine Australian tradition, but with the government's voter ID laws and voter suppression, it might become a thing of the past. federal government wants to introduce voter ID laws for elections and it's a solution searching for a problem. The government insists that people need to identify themselves when they vote at federal elections to stop voter fraud, but there's actually no evidence of voter fraud in any Australian elections and there's been absolutely no evidence that it's resulted in a seat being awarded to the wrong person or an election being won by the wrong government. During the 2013 election, there was one person who actually voted 15 times, according to the records, and there were 2,000 instances of people who voted more than once. And of course, there are people who deliberately vote twice from all sides of politics, or maybe not just twice, quite a few times, but it's so few, and because it happens from both sides, effectively, this process of double voting or deliberate double voting is cancelled out. So it's, it's not really a problem. Do you think that this is a case where the Liberal Party is now seeing how voter suppression was beneficial for the Republican Party in US elections? And, and that's where they set up a series of laws and practices that resulted in people who would normally vote for the Democrats being denied access to, to being able to cast their vote. Do you think it's a case of a voter suppression process or is it a legitimate way of cleaning up the electoral system? Voter suppression in Australia is a very odd concept. Because if you're an Australian citizen and you are over 18, you must vote. Unless you have a very good reason why you can't. 
when I say very good reason, the, the law has said these are why you can't vote. Religious objection, you're allowed to apply as a person following a religion, say Jehovah's Witnesses don't vote. So the law will allow that. If you are called away out of your state on an emergency, you can be exempted from voting. If you're, or Same if you're out of the country. Now, having said that, there's an excellent system of absentee voting, particularly at the federal level and at the international level. You can go to, to your local embassy when you're overseas and vote that way. You can vote early, legally, I mean. I think, what, in the last election... 46% of votes were cast in the first three weeks before the election, which is a good thing. The Australian Electoral Commission does its very best to make sure that everybody votes. There's very little excuse not to vote. And because it's compulsory, it should be easy. In the states where it's not compulsory, there's all kinds of tricks they can do. They put fewer voting places in areas where they're less likely to get voted for. They vote on a Tuesday, so a lot of people can't vote because they've got to work. In Australia, we vote on a Saturday. That still wipes out some people who work, but not really because the polls open at 7 o'clock and don't finish till 6. So for Scott Morrison to bring these ideas up shows, again, his laziness in thinking, his poor strategy, because how long is it going to be before mainstream journalists say, wait a second, nobody is stopped from voting. I'm, and I'll be fair, I'm sure that there are some disadvantaged groups that find it difficult to vote and then cop a $20 fine, which can be quite difficult. Well, in a democratic system, you need to encourage as many people to vote as possible. So whether there is a compulsory voting system or whether there isn't a compulsory voting system, well, you've got to encourage as many people as possible to, to go and, and vote. And also, we, we do have to point out that it's not compulsory voting per se. It's just that you were obliged to turn up on the day of an election and register that you have turned up to vote. That's it. You can do whatever you want at the ballot box if you want. You can draw pictures. You can put in a blank vote. You can do whatever, absolutely whatever you want at the, at the ballot box. So it's not essentially compulsory voting. It's just that you were... It, it's compulsory attendance. Yeah, that's right. So aside from all of those issues, like this for me is an absolute joke. And if you're getting the impression that I'm not very happy with the Morrison government today, well, that's absolutely true. There's so many factors that are coming up, which I'm totally unhappy about. The election could be 33 days away. That's the other factor. But on the eve of an election, the government decides that now is the time to introduce voter ID laws, even though it hasn't been on the agenda at all during this parliamentary term. It is an issue that's been bubbling in the background for, for some time. After the 2013 and the 2016 elections, the Abbott and then the Turnbull governments, they did want to introduce some form of voter ID. Historically, voter fraud or double voting, it could actually make a difference in a close or a marginal seat. I did do some research into this, but I noticed that there was a case in the seat of Ballarat in 1919, where a seat was won by just one vote. But there were irregularities within that seat, and a by-election was called to rerun that particular election in that seat. But that, to me, shows that there are checks and balances in place by the Australian Electoral Commission. There's the Court of Disputed Returns to adjudicate whether there has been a problem. But whether these processes are effective or not, well, that's a different matter. But there are processes in place where if voter fraud has been detected, they can run that particular election again. And 
the other factor is, I guess, that the idea of voter ID, that might have merit. You know, why not prove yourself when you turn up to vote on election day? But the other issue is that it's likely to affect people on the margins, Indigenous people, migrants. Whatever the case is, the government wants to introduce these laws because they think that there will be a benefit for them from introducing these laws. And, and this is all about politics and diversion. Not even the Institute of Public Affairs wants voter ID. It's a diversion it will disenfranchise people, and it's a sign that the Morrison government will do anything that it needs to do to win the next election, even if that does mean voter suppression. Yeah. The system comes out of the British system in terms of it's secret. Nobody needs to know who you vote for, and you can spend your whole time saying how you're going to vote for Scott Morrison and he's your guy, and then you get to the ballot and you end up changing your mind and voting for the Labor Party. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly legal. It's nobody's business. Nobody should need to know who you vote for. The other thing they often complain about is, oh, compulsory voting, it advantages the left. And I struggle to see how that's the case, given that 70% of the federal government has been a non-left government or a non-labor government, I probably should say. So that notion that it advantages the other side is a total nonsense. I'm wondering if this is the bared teeth of a wounded and dying animal who's been cornered and is trying to get out of a fatal situation. When in doubt, talk about voter suppression. This is also really brave after the Gladys Lou case where they scraped through by the skin of their teeth with uh, not being charged with voter fraud by putting up those Chinese signs, implying, essentially, vote one liberal. Now, I... I am inclined to think that the, well, I, I do think that the Chinese-speaking population is smarter than that. But I don't think that the thinkers in the Liberal Party are, and I do think that there was a deliberate attempt to deceive there. So they're very good at bending the laws that they're trying to protect. Well, that is another issue, of course, that the the government wants to make the electorate accountable, but not itself. And And you mentioned that issue about... Gladys Liu in the seat of Chisholm with the signage in Mandarin. It was set up to make it look like official AEC signage at those polling booths. But it wasn't just Gladys Liu. It was also Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong as well. And that was taken to the Court of Disputed Returns as well. And it was found that there was no case to answer there. Josh Frydenberg actually did win that seat by a substantial amount. It's, it's, he did have a massive swing against him, but he still holds that seat by 6%. So there's no, even if there was voter fraud or even if there was deception with the, the signage in Mandarin, there's probably not enough votes there to swing that particular seat of Kuyong. But in the seat of Chisholm, well, that's where it gets more interesting because there was only a couple of hundred votes in that particular seat. I'd be looking at that to see if there's any issues that could have affected the end results. So it's those sort of practices, that idea of putting up a deceptive sign outside the polling booth, it's those sort of practices that new law should be targeting. And it's not that process of asking people to produce ID at federal elections. It's almost like the wrong people are being asked to be held accountable. Yeah, a master of spin, obfuscation and smoke and mirrors, not a master of anything substantial that requires thought. Oh, well, again, it gets back to what we talked about at the beginning of this section, that it's another classic distraction from a seriously incompetent government. They work 
very, very hard on those issues that simply don't matter. And there's the references to all those culture wars and the history wars that they've spent so much time and energy on creating all of these distractions, all of these issues that ultimately don't make any difference within the community. And now they've got voter ID to focus on. It's yet another distraction. It doesn't make any difference to public accountability. It's just one of those classic issues that they've decided, well, this is another thing that we either need to seek distraction from all of the problems that we're having. And if we get a benefit out of having voter suppression in this sort of way, well, that's an extra bonus. Other political news, Tony Smith has resigned as the Speaker of the House. He was planning to retire at the next election anyway, but he's now saying that he wanted to sit on the backbench for the final part of Parliament so that he could better represent his constituents. And he also suggested that his early resignation has got absolutely nothing to do with the incident the week before, and that was when a ruling that he made was overturned by the federal government, and that was the first time that this has ever happened in Federation. All of this we have to place in context of Tony Smith is, first and foremost, he's a politician at the moment, sitting on the backbench to represent his constituents. Parliament might actually be over, so I'm not sure how that's going to work. It could be a week or it could be a few days. So (laughs) representing his constituents from the backbench for a few days, who knows what's going on there. And of course, he's not going to blame the government for overturning that referral last week. He's first priority is to the Liberal Party and he wouldn't want to cause any trouble for them. But is there something else going on here? Why would Tony Smith resign right now? There was just another week that was due in Parliament in late November. So do you think that he just wants to get his Christmas shopping out of the way or is there something else that's going on here? I actually do think he realised his position as Speaker was untenable. He did the right thing. Uh, He did the only thing. He had lost legitimacy as Speaker through no fault of his own tooth. Let's really give the credit where the credit's due. Instead of the government doing what it normally does and saying, yeah, yep, we'll hold an inquiry and giving it to Gaichens and Gaichens sitting on it for three years, they panicked and voted the Speaker down. Unprecedented, unconstitutional, showing them to be an illegitimate government. We have a government with no legitimacy at the moment. Now, really, Smith should have resigned on the spot, but I will be fair here too. It's easy for for us to sit a couple of hundred kilometres away after the fact and say this. I suspect he went away and thought about it. And one of the things that would have prompted his thought was that a lot of Liberal backbenchers had voted without really realising what it was they were voting for. Now, I don't know if that's because they weren't paying attention whether they weren't told this, they were just told to vote yes when the bells ring or what the issue was. But when they found out what they had done, quite a few of them, and this is as it should be too, were very angry. And the Prime Minister has been avoiding meetings all week apparently to try and explain this to backbenchers and to nervous backbenchers. 
backbenchers who are on very small margins who are looking at 7 and 8% swing nationwide, potentially. A lot are going to just get wiped out. Whether there is a 7 or 8% swing, I don't know. The polls are suggesting this. And we've discussed the problems with the current mode of political polling. This is where I think there's been a mood shift. I think we may be seeing, to paraphrase Churchill, the end of the beginning of the end. (laughs) But I think we're going down a path of no return for the government. I don't want to say too much more because... At this point, and again, sitting several hundred kilometers away and from our lofty position of semi-privilege, it's easy to make comments. But I think a non-legitimate government who is starting to lash out and bare its teeth to prevent further wounding to survive, it's not a pretty thing. It's not a good thing in the short term. It can be a good thing in the long term as we get rid of an illegitimate government. And I think a desperate street rat cunning cowardly fighter like Morrison will be forced into some extreme actions not the actions of a calm rational intelligent strategic thinker but the actions of a panicked juvenile incompetent sufferer of Dunning-Kruger syndrome which is who we have as Prime Minister. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.